You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 129 of the Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I am your host, Connor Johnnan, and I am joined by my co-host, David Howe. For this week's episode, we are joined by Matt Stern, who is an archaeologist and journalist and also wears a bunch of other different hats that he'll explain as we go through this interview. Matt, how are you doing on this uh, lovely fall day? Doing great. I'm currently sitting at our ranch up in Jackson, Wyoming, watching the leaves turn colors. And we actually just had two bears walk through our yard about 15 minutes ago. So I apologize if there's any unwarranted bear distractions during the podcast. (laughs) Sure, man. Safety first. You do what you got to do with you if it happens. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it'd be great to have you on. Like, I think you're the first journalist we've had or like someone that's taken that kind of alternative career path in anthropology. So it'd be really good to, you know, get the audience familiar with that. But yeah. you guys seem to go way back, right? We do. Yeah. Connor and I were just trying to figure out the last time we saw each other. And I know the first time we met was actually about 10 years ago. I was, uh, I met Connor on his field school in the middle of nowhere. Well, I guess that describes most of Wyoming, but in the middle <laughs> of the, the Shirley Basin of, of Wyoming. Um, and we've, we've kept in touch ever since. I think maybe Connor, when was the last time we actually saw each other? It was probably an SAA, right? I was thinking either DC SAA or Orlando SAA. I, I don't I know if I saw you guys at Albuquerque. I think Orlando. But yeah, Connor and I Connor and I go way back and, and David and I also have a history, but not not quite as long. Yeah. Yeah. I think we had met once at a talk that you gave mm-hmm. in Wyoming. And then yeah, this summer I'd like sat next to you at lunch eating a sandwich and we we chatted. <laughs> Yeah, I got to I got to hang out with David at the Lapel Mammoth excavation for for a couple of days this summer, which was incredible. Which uh, you're currently working on something with that, right? I am. Yeah, um, I was there on assignment for Archaeology Magazine. Um, they they were really excited about the the work that's being done there, and gave me an excuse to finally get to see it. I've been wanting to go visit that dig for about three or four years now. Oh, but wow. yeah, I, I actually just fired off the the text for that article a few days ago, and it should be out sometime this winter. Cool. Yeah, this was the year to, to come, I think. It was all sounds set like up you, good, good stuff. Yeah, it sounds like you found a bunch of stuff and whatnot. But yeah, so you were you were the, the TA on my field school, the, the person that I was looking up to, um, seeing how I can, how an archaeology career can go. And it was, it was exciting. I, I really enjoyed having you there, just your experience with stuff that we are obviously going to talk about as we go further into the podcast, but so what was kind of your first experience with like archeology span and anthropology growing up? Yeah, well that, that actually goes way back. So my, my first tickle with professional archeology span happened when I was actually 12 or 13 years old and it's never really stopped since then. But I was, I was in middle school, uh, sixth or seventh grade and it was the office of the Wyoming state archaeologist was excavating a, a Paleo-Indian, a, a Folsom site, not too far from our middle school. And I didn't know much about archaeology, but I knew there was a, a dig going on there and I thought it'd be neat to see it. And so the following week, my parents were actually at a friend's birthday party at the Cowboy Bar in, in downtown Jackson. And lo and behold, they met the group of archaeologists who were working there. And the conversation basically turned into we have a kid who likes digging holes, which the archaeologist responded with, well, we like digging holes. And so they said, well, bring your kid down. 
And so I got permission to leave school for two hours to go volunteer on this uh, archaeological site. And two archaeologists there, Dan Aiken and, and Richard Adams, invited me into their one-by-one unit. And uh, two hours of volunteering almost immediately turned into two weeks of working on um, what was the Game Creek excavation. And I, I just immediately fell in love with it. Like, it just felt so natural and, and, and was just amazing to be excavating alongside professionals when I was 12 years old. But it, needless to say, I was immediately hooked. And so one thing led to another, and, and I kept in touch with, with Rich, who's now a, a PhD, Dr. Rich Adams, and just finished teaching at the University of Wyoming. But I kept in touch with him over the years. And when I was in college, a freshman at Davidson College, I, I just sent him an email saying I was interested in pursuing archaeology throughout my degrees. And he responded, well, this is a great time you got in touch with us because we're about to start a, a massive high altitude project in the Wind River Range. And he invited me to come out the, the year after and the rest is history. Years later, this was 2007, I think, when I first joined him and, and we still work together today. That's awesome, man. For a kid to get thrown into archaeology, I think Wyoming is probably the most intense place you could you could go. <laughs> you lucked out. <laughs> yeah, it was. I remember just being around all the. I mean, yeah. Not, now it's so. I mean, we do it every summer. It's, it's we all know what working on an excavation is like. But for for somebody who'd never seen that, especially being preteen, it was pretty shocking <laughs> yeah. to be around a group of archaeologists on an excavation. Yeah. And, but, and you've also had, and this is, I think something you told, or we had learned about you during the field school is you kind of almost did the other extreme of archeology span where you have like high desert, you know, hot, all that kind of stuff. But you also did archeology with Dr. Robert Ballard in the Black I did, Sea. Yeah. Um, and so this like was, a, yeah, phenomenal. Yeah. We can call, I've always wanted to do a, like a conference presentation called like from the bottom to the top, like <laughs> underwater archaeology to alpine archaeology. But yeah, when I was in high school, I, I was invited to go on a, a six weeks expedition to the Black Sea. And so Bob Ballard has, has been a, a ranch guest. Uh, my family runs a dude ranch in Jackson, which is basically a, a hotel where people come to play cowboy for a week. And for years and years and years, Bob Ballard and his family have, have visited and I got to know him and his research. And when I was a freshman in high school, out of the blue, basically, it was like a 3 a.m. phone call in the middle of winter that we answered. Because usually it's bad news if somebody calls at 3 a.m. in the middle of winter. But we answered it. And, and basically, Bob said his math there. I'm sure I got on the phone. and said, you want to come to the Black Sea next summer? Yes. And so I, I ended up missing a lot of school and flew to uh, Crete, where we steamed up to the Black Sea. And, and the goal of this expedition was to try and disprove the theory that ancient mariners only hugged the coast. So if you talk about Greek, Greek and Roman trade, a lot of historians say that they hugged the coast because of big storms. And so we had this, or Bob had this theory, well, that, that was hogwash. They were mariners. They, they were traders. They wanted to get from point A to point B as fast as they could. So they just probably drew a line across the middle of the sea and, and went as fast as they could. And so that's where we looked. And we, I was on a research vessel for six weeks. Before anything even got started, we got arrested and impounded by the Ukrainians. Um, we were thrown into the, the Russian Black Sea naval base in, in Crimea. We were actually the first American ship to be there since World War II. <laughs> and um, it, it took a, Condoleezza, a phone call from Condoleezza Rice to get us out. And so this was, it was a wild experience, but we ended up finding some wonderful things because the, the bottom of the Black Sea has no oxygen. What year was that, if you don't mind me asking? 
This was back in 2006. 2006. Okay. And, and so because the, the bottom of the Black Sea has no oxygen, anything organic that sinks into it doesn't decompose. And so we found Roman, Byzantine, uh, medieval shipwrecks that still had their sails and their rigging and everything That's attached. Enough. It was incredible. And so, yeah, I got my first taste of Wyoming archaeology when I was 12, but I got my first taste of international archaeology when I was a freshman in college. And basically after that, I knew, I knew this was it for me. I mean, it was, it would, to me, it seemed one of the most incredible ways to not just see the world, but to have a unique way to really learn about a place. Because when you go there as an archaeologist, like you have to study everything that goes into a town, both ancient and modern day. And the more I, I had opportunities to do that, I just realized it was such an incredible way to, to see and learn about the world. Well, it's a way to get like arrested and if it should have yeah, on a record, it doesn't look as bad, you know? <laughs> I know. It makes for a great like two truths and a lie. Like never been arrested by Russians. <laughs> okay. So you have these experiences kind of in your, your formative years. Is that kind of what pushed you obviously? And then working with Rich, when you were at Davidson College, that's what kind of pushed you into the, at least doing the academic beginnings to archaeology. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I knew I knew this is what I what I wanted to do, and at the time, I think as many students do, like I didn't know what I wanted to to really focus on because I had these amazing, as you said, formative experiences both in the old world but also here in, in North America. And so as I was kind of going to college, I decided to to try and do both as much as I could, and so I. I studied both classical archaeology and anthropology at the same time during the summers going into the, the Wind River Range with, with Dr. Adams, with Rich. And that was a really magical time to be doing mountain archaeology because for the most part, other than a few projects like David Hurst Thomas did it in Nevada and, and Bob Bettinger and, and Jim Benedict in Colorado, but for the most part, not a lot of work, even in, in 2007, had been done in the mountains, especially in Wyoming. And so we kind of had this amazing moment to be faced with this frontier in, in North American archaeology that like that never happens. And so it was this really like romantic and magical time to be going up and, and surveying these vast landscapes that hadn't really been looked at before. And kind of the opportunity to do that too was again just kind of another twist of the knife. That's like, Haha, buddy, you're you're going to be doing this the rest of your life. <laughs> What's the preservation like up there? Like, is stuff just laying on the surface, or is it kind of glaciated? Yeah, working it. it how you find archaeological remains preserved in the mountains is, uh, is like anywhere. It's different from mountain range to mountain range. In the the winds, it's it's a lot of granite, and so it's highly acidic soil, and so anything organic for the most part, doesn't preserve. Wood does a little bit. Like we would find um, what we call lodge pads, which are basically the equivalent of a tent pad if you camp a lot. They were circular platforms cut out into the, the hillside where, where wooden structures like wiki-ups would have been made. And if we found five or more of them, we called it a village. Wow. And uh, the largest one that Rich introduced me to was High Rise Village, which had over 80 of these, these cut-and-fill lodge pads. And so in them, mostly lithic artifacts. Um, occasionally, we'd find bone but something else we, we've been doing more recently in, in other mountain ranges is ice patch archaeology, looking for organic material that's been preserved in, in uh, permanent snowfields. And the preservation there is astronomical. Everything from atlatl shafts to baskets to moccasins to things you just never get to find in, in wow. Wyoming. Yeah, I know uh, Dr. Kelly found like a, a bow is what something that he 
Yeah, he did. That was actually, um, <laughs> I call that my worst birthday <laughs> present because we went on our first ice patch archaeology project in the Teton range. And we were so thrilled because we found a little whittled piece of wood about the size of my thumb that we, we dated to about 1500 years ago. And we came back just on cloud nine, like, oh, we did it. Our first ice patch, we found an actual artifact. The first person I called and texted was Bob, um, Dr. Kelly, and he had gotten back from a similar trip. And his response was, and this was on my birthday, I called him. I don't know why I remember that, but I called him and said, we found this thing. And he goes, oh, yeah, that's nice. We found two bows in our <laughs> ice patch. <laughs> not a lot of competition, but that one, <laughs> that one got me, but... Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting and it's kind of one of those things that we're, we're trying to do as much of it as we can, especially in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, because especially the last two years we're we're just seeing all that snow disappear at, at rapid rates. And as soon as it does, those organic artifacts kind of just dissolve once they become unpreserved. Yeah. Like, like Matt said, a lot of the, like what we see in Wyoming is like those stone circles, but you can kind of see those preserved in these Alpine environments as well, because yeah, like you said, nothing else comes out or soapstone or you know which you found a couple mm-hmm. couple artifacts with and which has been yeah just a few <laughs> um and so yeah soapstone um is uh it's a basically talc it's a it's a super soft rock that um the the mountain shoshone in northwestern wyoming carved bowls out of but we actually found a few i think we've maybe found one on the field school so something that's wild about this mountain archaeology too is that it's basically a wilderness expedition with a scientific theme. Like we go into really remote parts of the mountains. We have to pack in horses. We have to set up a, a base camp. And so when when we had Connor, um, when Connor and I first met in the field school, we had this wild hair idea. Hey, let's take 30 field school students to one of these remote sites. And we did it. And it was, it was incredible. We got to show, um, I mean, very few field school students ever get to go up to the winds, much less a, a site like High Rise Village. But I think we did find a couple of these, the soapstone bowls while we were there. Yeah. It was truly like a formative experience because like you said, it's, it's an expedition. It's not just camping outside of Dubois or, you know, where you can drive into town and and get a beer later in the day. You know, this really felt, felt like you were going out onto the frontier trying to find new things. And high rise is interesting because it's, it's called high rise because it's like, was it like 10 stories from like the lowest pad or yeah it's it's wildly steep it's it's like the equivalent of a double blue or black diamond ski run to and so shuttling gear up and down the thing while excavating oh my it's probably God. the best shape any of us have ever been in our entire lives <laughs> right you would have to like well one a field school is kind of designed to weed out people who don't want to do archaeology so i can't imagine having to hike and trek up into the winds with screens and shovels was you had to be tough for that one <laughs> Yeah, people, I think after that trip, either decided this is what they're going to do or never, ever again. I think the quote was, uh, I didn't sign up for mountain climbing school. <laughs> but, but I'm sure they still talk yeah, about it. That, that's what we want. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, you told me about your field school, Connor, but I didn't realize it was that intense. I'm looking at pictures of High Rise Village right now, too, and that is pretty impressive. There's that many people living up there, high altitude adapted. Yeah, it's, it's a wild site, and, and every one of those lodge pads that, that we would excavate, um, and there was a whole team whole team of us who did. I was just lucky enough to be involved. Um, we would find something like twenty or thirty thousand artifacts per lodge pad. It was it was just insane what was left up there. What are what are they eating up there? Like goat, or is it or sheep? Yeah, we'd find sheep. So recently, Rebecca and I, so we hadn't been in the winds for a while, but my my wife and co project director and I returned with with Rich a couple of years ago. 
and we collected um, soapstone bowls and, and did residue analysis on them and also pottery and groundstone from villages, not high rise, but other villages that we found. And everything from roots and tubers to marmot to beaver to bear, moose, uh, even some bison and, and bighorn sheep. So basically everything that we see up there today, they were they were cooking. Cool. Yeah, and and as as you've studied um, pine nuts as well, and I think that's a good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure we'll get to that in a little bit, but absolutely. Yeah, pine pine nuts were crucial. One of the the, the fattiest food sources available to, to prehistoric people up there, and, and almost every artifact we have were just covered in in pine nut residue. And, and a lot of these villages are, are located amongst white bark pine stands. I think that's a great spot to end it because I'd love to get more into that because i remember connor telling me pine nuts were such a big thing up there so yeah i'd love to hear more welcome back to episode 129 of a life in ruins podcast we're here with matt stern david howe and we ended the last segment talking about or at least teasing that we were going to talk more about pine nuts and people who have listened to this podcast for 129 episodes will know that i did part of my research my master's research on modeling in the wind river range and Lo and behold, this is the creator of that lovely model and the person who initially used it. So Matt, if you don't mind talking about what was the impetus to create the model and, and how it ended up working out. Yeah, you bet. So during, actually, even before we, we really started working in the winds, before I was invited, Rich Adams had been a, a big advocate for the importance of pine nuts to prehistoric people. And he did a few studies and determined that by weight, White bark pine nuts, which grow above, basically at tree line and, and along the continental divide, were single-handedly the fattiest food source available to any prehistoric people in North America. Like even more so than than the fattiest meat. Wow! And so when he when he found these villages amongst white bark pine stands, he kind of had this idea: well, maybe mountain people um, in the late prehistoric period were were going up specifically to to harvest them, like building these whole villages just around pine nuts and obviously doing other things, but pine nuts were the big draw. And so we kind of had this idea for a couple of years. And then as we were excavating high rise, usually we would spend a couple of days working and then going out and seeing what else was out there. Because for the most part, none of the other drainages surrounding high rise village had ever been surveyed for archeology. span And within the first couple of years, we found three or four smaller, but, but just as impressive villages and we noticed that they were basically the same site, but on different mountains. They were same elevation, facing the same direction. And lo and behold, they were all amongst really old white bark pine stands. And again, one of the most common artifacts we found at all of them was monos and matates, the perfect implement for grinding pine nuts. And so when I was at my undergrad, Davidson College, I took a class on, on GIS and remote sensing. And my professor, Bill Ringel, he works in Central America on Mayan sites, but he's done a lot of computer modeling and for archaeological prospection. And we kind of came up with this idea that there seemed to be, it was only three sites, but there seemed to be a pattern in the winds amongst villages. And we had this kind of underlying theory. And so we wrote a, a, a GIS, where we created a GIS predictive model that looked at the, the terrain, the, the solar radiation, the, the landscape, and also we, we tried to create, based on what we knew about climate data, where ample whitebark pine stands would have existed in the Wind River Range 2,000 to 500 years ago. Um, I, I created a predictive model that basically spat out a, a map of the Wind River Range with most likely areas rated from 0 to 9, and 9 being, if we're right, these are where villages should be. 
And so the the following year, this was in 2000, uh, 2011, I believe. There could have been 2010, 2010 maybe. Got funding from Davidson College and also the Explorers Club to go out and look. And so we did three one-week trips deep into the winds to places we hadn't been before. And we actually found 21 new villages. And every single one of them was on one of these kind of X's that the predictive model had had generated. And so we always joke that like X never, ever marks a spot in archaeology, but this was like the one and only time that it ever worked out that it did. <laughs> and, and sure, like we, we could have been, it could be something else, but we, um, we ran some statistical analyses on areas we found the villages on versus what else existed in the entire area we were surveying. And according to those models, there was less than like 0.000001% chance that this was a random pattern. We had this great model. It worked. We were very surprised. But it's interesting because we didn't know if it worked elsewhere. And that's kind of where Connor's research came in. And, And what you found, I guess, was kind of a little bit of a different story. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of, and Rich and I have talked about this and and Brian, and I think we've discussed this too. It was just, it feels like a much different environment in the Southern winds and a more heavily trafficked area too. (laughs) But we really didn't find any, any sort of indications of, of villages or, or village sites in the Southern winds, not meaning that the, the model is incorrect. It just, they weren't there but there was sites that occurred in these flat areas um, in, in the same sort of areas that were predicted, but they didn't really have the same sort of signature that you were seeing almost like it seemed, it seemed to be like hyper local <laughs> yeah. like just a few drainages. But it's really cool because we, the artifacts we found there uh, were pretty much diagnostic of the Shoshone or the, the sheep eaters, the mountain Shoshone. And so fast forward five or six years when we were working in Jackson, we got to, collaborate with some Shoshone Bannock elders and actually go to the base, like the parking lot where we hike up into the winds and, and spend a couple of days talking with them about the discovery of these villages. And it's, it's really cool because it they, they fall into oral histories that the Shoshone haven't really shared much outside of their, their own circles. But it was really wild that they had memories of these villages, but no like actual proof they existed. And so it was really cool to to be able to find these and have them mean a little bit more than just finding an incredible archaeological site. That's awesome. It's also just thinking the whole time too, like the bone needle we found at Laprell, somebody had commented like, it's nuts that like something so small was like integral to survival. But like, yeah. I didn't know pine nuts were a thing until I like met Connor. I, I He was like, have you eaten pesto? And I was like, oh, right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like just like that little nut was so like important to their culture up there and their food is like pretty, pretty intense to me. Yeah. It's incredible. I always thought it'd be fun. I don't know if you would get anything with it, but to look at like a pine nut index around the world to see if there's any, not like similarities, but to see if like, I don't know, early culture or different things evolved or, or there's some kind of pattern where these fatty nuts exist around the world. Something for a rainy day, maybe. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And I know I've seen some pictures of like some of the I think it was like Julian Stewart stuff in the Great Basin where you kind of see these implements where they're using to harvest white, white bark or it wasn't white bark. It was some other pine. Yeah. Probably pinion or, or one of those other ones. Limber pine. Maybe. Yeah. 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 But it was really cool to see like the, the industry they had created around it. These super intricate, like I think it was like a basket that they were using to ultimately like n- take all these pine cones down. And then you have to like, and it's a whole process. You, Right. And you guys did a little bit of like, yeah, we did a little bit, but God, it's, it's not easy. I mean, it, it takes a while to, to do. And so again, that's why we're wondering if to, to do it 
to the extent that you needed to feed like a whole family or a whole population, maybe that's a reason why these villages popped up is that you actually needed to spend like a solid amount of time there to really process the nuts to the extent that you could take them with you or turn them into something to eat. You and you and Rebecca also are studying these soapstone bowls for evidence of, of we are, yeah. use um, as well. Because in, uh, we actually found a, where we worked with a, a Canadian scientist who does lipid residues and, in an old 1950s medical journal, of all things, she found a way to extract uh, fatty acids from artifacts without destroying them, because typically it's a highly destructive process. You have to powder whatever artifact you're doing, and, and we didn't want to do that, especially with things like pottery, which is very rare in Wyoming. And so she, we, we both developed a technique together to extract uh, lipids, which can be traced to individual species of animals. And the cool part too is it not only worked on buried artifacts, but we we got incredible results from surface artifacts, really, which, which is really neat to do. And yeah, we found uh, all, all kinds of food, but again, on all the ground stone, we found two things. It was either entirely used for whitebark pine, or it was used for tubers like biscuit root and marmot. And then it was really wild that they were they were just bashing up marmots <laughs> and, and beavers to to. Um, meat their soup. But I mean, those things are incredibly hard to butcher. So maybe it's better just to, to mush them all together with a, a large stone. But one of the coolest things we found was, uh, was freshwater fish. So either trout or ling, or maybe even salmon, but in a soapstone bowl from a site near high rise. And the other ingredients we found in that matched ingredient for ingredient, the recipe for a Shoshone fish stew that ethnographers recorded on the Fort Hall reservation in the early 1800s. And I think that finding that and like seeing it match a known ethnographic recipe was probably one of the coolest things of my career. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that really connects the, like the, the upper mountain range to lower and, and, and the people who were there before, which is, mm-hmm. yeah, awesome. it, kind of, it brings it, it brings awesome. it into modern day too, which is something that is always was really neat when you can accomplish it or when you get lucky and not, not accomplish it, but lucky enough to see that connection made. So interesting of the grinding of the small animals. I've never heard of that being done, but it makes sense because you could just pick out the bones at that point and, yeah, and you would get nutrients from ground up bones as well. I think maybe if you cooked it long enough in a, in a soup or stew, you might not notice them. Yeah. Another another project for a rainy day while we're researching the history of pine nuts. <laughs> right. Yeah. And as you mentioned before, you have this really interesting breadth of knowledge to use today. I think we're, we'll talk about in the last segment, what do you do for your actual job? Mm-hmm. But you did continue on in academia and get a, a master's degree at uh, the University of Sheffield. What did you kind of study there? Yeah. And I guess talking about the the lipid residues is a great interlude to that. And so when I was figuring, I, I knew I wanted to go to grad school. I, I really wanted, this was the time where we were really working heavily in the winds and I was finishing my undergrad. I was like, gosh, I, I want to continue doing this at, at, and continue my education. And at the time I was getting, not frustrated, but just kind of feeling weird about archaeological or anthropological theory. <laughs> that was that really surrounded a lot of our research in the winds as to why people were building these massive villages in a landscape that is, is really quite difficult for those who aren't familiar with it. And there was all these, these theoretical perspectives getting wrapped up in it. And in my mind, I was like, well, we're spending so much time centered on these questions of why when we still don't know what and when they were even doing. And at that time, I'd had some friends who had gone to the University of Sheffield in Northern England 
And when, when we applied to go there, it was the largest archaeological program actually in the world. I think they had 75 professors on faculty. And their, their main focus was archaeological science. And, and they called it environmental archaeology, but it was essentially using scientific proxies like biomolecular studies or uh, residues, um, environmental data, to rather than asking why things happen to actually answer how, when, and what people were doing first. And I was like, well, that, that's the answer to my question. And so actually my, my wife and I got, she's a fellow archaeologist, we got into the same program and, and we went for a couple of years over to England. And it was really, really eye-opening to me because I had this background in anthropological theory from the U.S., but then getting the, the master's in science over there was just a, a really cool complement to it and just getting to see how, how people did things in the old world. And so kind of coming back with that, that arsenal and excitement of throwing science at archaeological sites kind of led us to doing this, this big residue study in the mountains. But it also showed me, which was, I'll, I'll talk maybe at the, the end if we have time, one of the biggest uh, warnings I got from professors, and this is for all the students out there um, going to school at the University of Sheffield, they said, well, you want to work in the U.S., but if you go to school in England, you're going to lose all your contacts, you're going to turn into an old world archaeologist. And, and one of the greatest things about going to school there was seeing a that's not true but b it's it's totally possible to to build a, a career that includes both work in the mediterranean and in wyoming in the united states kind of getting to pass that that knowledge on like proof that you can actually do it was was really really neat yeah i have heard and seen a lot of people that do get a degree overseas really struggle getting a job back here especially academic because mm-hmm. it's just a different system. Yep, and totally. So the career we went with was was a little unorthodox as well. But I kind of had this thought: as I don't necess- I didn't necessarily want to get pigeonholed with a specific culture or geographical region, because I had interests in, in doing archaeology all over the place. And so by specializing in in scientific techniques, I hoped at the time that this could be a skill set that could be applied anywhere and actually might be more valuable for hirers rather than just saying like. I'm a hunter-gatherer archaeologist, or I'm a Greek maritime archaeologist. Rather, I can I can actually analyze any type of artifact, or, or look at a suite of artifacts and come up with with specific analytical techniques to look at them. It might be something that would allow us to work anywhere in the world, and and so far it has. But I've seen pictures of you, you know, with like Greek and Roman vases or pottery mm-hmm. and and things like that. And it's cool that you have a transferable skill that is cross-cultural. I mean, I don't think that's something that's mentioned much in archaeology. Yeah. You, we, we pigeonhole ourselves into, I mean, David's different obviously because he does dogs mm-hmm. all over, but I think having that broad skill set or like that broad research interest is, is like you said, a great, a great tool. Yeah. yeah I've come to the fact that I'll probably never be an expert in anything, but I'm happy being mediocre in a lot of things. <laughs> that is a really good way to put it. And like, Ritz tries to explain that to me in terms of like getting a master's versus a PhD. It's like you can have an interest in everything, but a PhD is like you have an interest in one thing and Mm -hmm. everything excites me. So it'd be hard to just pick one for six years. (laughs) Yeah. I always say my biggest obstacle is I'm just interested in too many things. Yeah. Oh, I get that. But there's, there's ways to work around it. Yeah. But yeah, we actually, gosh, we, my, we just got back from uh, working in Greece six weeks ago. We were excavating a Trojan War palace over there. That's just casual. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
It was pretty wild. Yeah, it's crazy going from like transitioning from 112 degrees in the Mediterranean to negative eight degrees and freezing snowstorms in the mountains. But <laughs> maybe that's the beauty of it. I don't know. Yeah, I think on on that note, we'll talk more in the the next segment about your current studies and all that fun stuff. So uh, yeah, this is episode. Great. 129 of a life in ruins podcast we will be right back welcome back to episode 129 of a life in ruins podcast we're here with our friend matt stern and your career obviously has been fascinating i'm sitting here fascinated the whole time but we haven't even gotten into the nitty-gritty of like what you currently do and i think that stuff is like you and i talked about this in the field it is kind of like mm-hmm. the future of archaeology so yeah just go ham man yeah, absolutely. So um, in, in addition to being a researcher, I, I currently work as a photojournalist. And to be honest, I've actually found myself doing more of that lately than than my own work. And so probably like five or six years ago, I was feeling a little dreary about the state of archaeological academia, just like information, like people were doing such amazing work all over the place. And even though when they publish, like in, even when we publish in huge journals, I mean, the information gets out there, but it only goes so far. Mm -hmm. And I noticed there was a lack of kind of public awareness too, of what archaeologists did. I mean, again, people were pouring their, their lives and careers into just brilliant work. And it was so depressing to me that like nobody had heard of it. (laughs) Um, And meanwhile, you're seeing others feel, you're seeing other sciences like biology. uh, I mean, things like paleontology, especially that are in the news in national geographic and scientific American, the New York times, like every other Mm -hmm. day. And archaeology is, but just not that much. And so I've always been a a keen photographer, and I've always had an interest in in being a journalist, but I never knew that that's where my career would would lead. And while we were doing a lot of these projects in the winds, and and occasionally when I would get to go on an international trip, um, I'd I'd constantly take pictures and just give them to the the researchers to use. And so every, every once in a while, one of those projects would get pressed. They'd get a story in USA Today or something like that. And mm. I noticed from the, I was getting really good feedback from the editors. Like you should basically saying they would love to know the next project I'm going on because they, they'd want to buy pictures. And I kind of turned on a light in my head. Like maybe, maybe I can help, I can, I can help be part of a solution to this issue that had just been nagging at me. I have great connections in the archaeological world. Uh, college taught me to to write worth something, maybe not the best writer in the world, but I can I can write a decent paper and I, I can take good photographs. And so I I kind of blindly, not blindly, but kind of tried to make a career shift by trying to cover other people's projects rather than doing my own. And so I went to people I knew. I went to archaeologists I'd worked with, Rich and the Winds. I went to archaeologists I'd worked with in Europe and just said, hey, can I come join you for a season. I'll do some field work if you need me, but I want to, I want to cover it like a journalist. And after the first few experiments, I had a handful of feature stories run in archaeology magazine. A few years later, I, I was able to go on an assignment to Sudan for Smithsonian magazine. Or I've done a couple features for actually today. I, I just sent off my, my newest story, which is about the site in Greece to the New York times. And so it's kind of been this this really amazing opportunity to be able to help share the the work of other people, and and that honestly to me has been more fulfilling than publishing in a journal or, or writing a book chapter. Just kind of getting getting to help get this work out into the world. It, it, it's been really neat. Yeah, and yeah, we kind of talked about that too. I mean, there's a lot of I, I agree that there's 
there's kind of two aspects to, to publishing archaeology as, as David and I talked around the campfire at Laprell. Like the traditional one is, is academic. And that's obviously important because you need to get stuff peer reviewed. You need to make sure it's, it's good and responsible work and it needs to be spread around the, mm-hmm. the archaeological community. But I think there's, there's definitely a lack in recognizing the importance of, of getting your research out into the general world as well. Yeah. Yeah. I would I would say and we we've talked recently in our past couple episodes about how we cover archaeology, how it is covered in the press and having it come written photographed from an archaeologist is refreshing because everything is very sensationalized, you know, like <laughs> yeah, totally. Lost City, oldest blah, blah 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 and it and it it really doesn't do justice to what we are doing in archaeology, what we're studying. <laughs> the number of times I have to fight to, to take superlatives out of a headline, because oftentimes I like I'll write the tech, but I don't get to choose the headline that whatever news agency runs with, and so they'll oh, send me yeah. a couple samples, and it'll be exactly that, like the most exciting, oldest, newest thing that's never been discovered before. Like I was like, whoa, 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 let's let's turn that down a little bit there, Haas. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, I think I agree. Like the more archaeologists that that can have a role in doing that, I mean podcasts like this are a great example. I mean, all the, the work that David, you do is, is a brilliant example of, of how to do that. Thanks, man. Means a lot for you. Yeah, no, seriously. I mean, reaching, reaching more audiences and it's crazy the way that, that social media is, is totally taking over. Like we, a couple of years ago, I, I did a, a course where I was working alongside the previous um, editor of Sports Illustrated magazine. And he said that on a really, really good year, one of their issues might reach something like two to three million people. And that was like exceptional. But you look at the power that social media has. Like I saw one of your, one of your reels about archaeology reached one million people. Like with that single post, you reach half of what the Sports Illustrated subscriber base was, which is just astronomical. That is wild to think about it that way. Yeah, it's nuts. And like, talking with Bob about it too, like his book can only get to so many people and like we've probably advertised his book more times than he sold it like on, like on here. And it's just like an odd thing to think about all that work goes into it. But like, yeah, it it is, it's a lot of responsibility too. And obviously like with you, with the taglines and the headlines, like you're like, I don't want it to look like you don't want your peers to think like less of you because of like, you mm-hmm. know, a sensational. But, it, but it's a fine line because if it's, if it's totally academic, then nobody's going to read it. And so like, there's this really fine line of hooking people to get them interested and in keeping it, it interesting for the non-archaeologists, but also being responsible to tell the story in, in like a legitimate way. And that's where yeah. I think like photography and video comes in because you can, you can hit them with some really cool visuals that, that make people interested mm-hmm. in the topic and then secretly feed them all the facts that they didn't know they wanted. <laughs> I noticed that when you got there this summer too, like it was cool to me because it's like, man, I get exclusive access to like the coolest Clovis site in the country and like just filming and stuff like that. But I know how the digging works there. Like I've worked there before, how that, and I knew exactly what to film. And like, as soon as you got there too, I saw you like, you knew how to walk around the site, what to take pictures of. And I was like, yeah, this, like, we need more of this. It was cool to me. It's like the nuances of navigating an archeology span site or the nuances of archeology span in context of greater research is the stuff that I feel like we, we really miss when other people write the story, you know, there's a lot yeah, of exactly. that out there. And it's hard. I mean, it's especially hard for, for people in like the academic world to do because 
it, it's silly to me that you get basically you get kudos from the department or whatever for publishing in a journal. But if you were to write an equivalent story in National Geographic magazine, you might get like a quick thumbs up, but it wouldn't really do much <laughs> for you for your career. And that's always been a little wild to me. But I mean, again, things things are always changing and evolving in, in the field of archaeology. So maybe that'll that'll morph one of these days. Yeah, it that is interesting. And like knowing what to like, so I have the Ted Ed thing that I wrote and I consulted mm-hmm. with PBS Eons and it's like putting that on my CV. It's like, where does that fall? It's not research. I guess it's like publication, but it's not, it's like media. And then it's this weird time of like, how do we advertise ourselves and stuff too? And it sounds like you've been doing a great job. Yeah. With and that, that's tricky too. Like I basically had to, I basically had to split like God, not just my career, but like how I present myself into two different people, depending on if I'm trying to apply to work on an archaeological site versus trying to cover an archaeological site. Because what they're interested in is, is, as you said, two absolutely different things. Yeah. Yeah. And it's painful for me that there's, they have, as, as I think Rich or someone else who had coined is that they, they have bean counters, you know, within academia to see like your worth. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and none of those things count. None of none of the public presentations, any of these things that are really actually going out and reaching people really factor into any sort of academic or yeah, exactly. anything like going but, forward. And even if that doesn't help you with your, your career, the kind the fulfillment of getting a happy email from an archeologist that you, you covered their work is just the best thing in the entire world. On the other side, it's the most terrifying thing in the world waiting for an archaeologist, waiting for the whoever was the project director to email you after the story comes out. <laughs> it's like I just sit there sweating until I hear a response from them. I'm like, oh God, I really hope I didn't mess something up. And it's tricky too, because like in other countries like Greece and Italy, the because like the the sites are owned essentially by the the government, the, in, the antiquity service, there's a lot of restrictions on what you can and can't photograph and can and can't talk about. And so that it's always really nerve wracking because like the last thing you want to do as a, a photographer, a journalist is get somebody in trouble with their research permit just because you, you wanted to publish like a pretty picture of their work. And so it's like a, there's a whole new set of um, boundaries that I had to learn to, or not boundaries, but rules that I, I had to learn to navigate as a, a journalist in addition to being an archaeologist. Hmm. Yeah. And that, that plays into that, like we're anthropologists too. So it's a whole new culture you have to learn. Mm-hmm. And like, I've noticed that with doing this kind of stuff and stand up actually too, it's like, you got to oh, nice. ingratiate yourself to the the guy who runs the club. You got to like say hi to the people that are at the club and you can see them go shake hands with the guy. So it's like, okay, if this is primate behavior, here's how I would function. But <laughs> like navigating a new field too, like you were telling me about like having the boilerplate statement that you send to people about like ideas, like all stuff I have no idea and there's no school for that. Yeah. And that being said, though, I've like, I, cause I, I, I talk and I work with a lot of other journalists who work in, in different fields like conservation or sports or different things like that. And I've learned that archaeology education has really helped me get a leg up in a different career as a journalist. I mean, it's a, it's a career that's related, but the skill sets of, I mean, everything down to like doing budgeting to running a project to having to write a grant proposal to having to write a report about what you did. Like those are all things that I have to do as a journalist that oftentimes they don't necessarily teach if you go to like journalism school. Yeah. And so at the time I didn't realize it, but what I was learning in my archaeology degree really set me up to to succeed in in this field that I didn't know I would be in. So 
it's easier for you to learn journalism and like from a non-academic setting than it is to learn the archaeology. Yeah, probably. Like you've, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> scientist first, journalist after kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think other people try to do it from the other way. Like you try to go into, for sure, like people just want to be YouTubers or they want to be journalists and like yeah, they don't have a niche. But like you and I and Connor have gone and are literal scientists with degrees and then can mm-hmm. do things like this. And I think that's probably a better route to go. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's like the Carl Sagan's of the world, the the Neil deGrasse Tyson's, you know, and and learning. Yeah, like you said, if if you have to tell like, because you have you've had like first graders, you've had like elementary school kids, mm-hmm. you kind of have to explain archaeology too. So if you can if you can have that conversation there, you can bring that up to another level to adults who are interested in this and and really explain things well, which is. It's yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And then you, yeah. One thing is, yeah, you explain the text and the, the next, the really tricky part is actually photographing in an archeological site because photographing a hunter gatherer excavation, especially there's not a lot to see there. A lot of di- like a lot of different things. Once a magazine publishes at once, I mean, you're looking at people screening in square units, pulling out chipstone. I mean, that's the meat of it. And so it's interesting. Like, how do you photograph a story and make it entirely unique and special to that particular site while doing something different that like something that's not everybody else has done in, in the past. And it's always kind of a, a little bit of an obstacle that you have to navigate. That is tough. Especially like when people don't understand what a flake is in a picture. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like it, it just looks like dirt. <laughs> well, if you have like monumental architecture or something like that, like those, those pictures go well. Yeah, exactly. If you can, if you can put lights and flashes on a pyramid, right. <laughs> uh, that'll, that'll make people excited all the time. But, but yeah, it's fun. When we were at La Pro, the archaeology magazine story that'll come out, we played around with lighting. Um, at least I did in the, the trailer that was out there, lighting mammoth ivory and bison antiquus mandibles and things like that. And so we'll, we'll see if the editors like those or not. Awesome. Yeah. You obviously have a u- unique career path in archaeology, anthropology, being a journalist. What would you tell a young person, undergrad, high schooler about if they're interested in archaeology, if they're interested in, in journalism, what would you tell them? What kind of advice would you give them at this point? As we kind of talked about earlier, I would say don't pigeonhole yourself. I mean, again, like if you have an interest and you know that's that's your jam, like you're just obsessed and fascinated with one topic, by all means do it. You'll, you'll be brilliant. You'll be great at it. But I think a lot of students don't know and, and that's totally fine. And there's a lot of pressure to kind of figure out what you want your specialty to be, especially in archaeology. And I think one of the greatest things I did was not necessarily do that. It doesn't mean like you, you, you can't do that and not have your hands in any projects. But I, I, I think some of the best advice is just explore and experiment in, in all the aspects of archaeology that you can and then figure out what, what interests you most because that's, that's really what you're going to be good at and that's what you're going to have the passion to, to pursue and write a 300-page report about and sit in the rain and the dust and work on. But again, if, if you have other skill sets in your life, like I, I noticed I had a knack for photography, even though that's not something traditionally utilized in archaeology, I experimented to see if it would work and it did. And so everybody has different backgrounds and different things that they do outside of school. And I think if there's a way that you can integrate that into the, the research you do or the work you do, it'll, it'll surprise everybody and it'll, it'll be awesome. I think that's an excellent answer, man. 
first off, if, do you have anything that you would recommend for folks to read? Obviously, there'll be links to your your paper and and kind of some of your work as part of the show notes. But do you have anything else you would recommend as uh, for someone to read who's interested in either mountain archaeology or you know all the things that you do? <laughs> yeah, actually, if I have something for people to watch, and okay. it's an old 1920s documentary called Grass, A Nation Fights for, for Survival. Um, I think that's the full title. And for anybody interested in history, the mountains or archaeology, that was single-handedly the most transformative thing I've seen. And it's Marion Cooper, who did um, King Kong, did this documentary about a, a nomadic tribe in the mountains in Iran. And if you, want, if, you, if you think you know anything about anthropology or what ancient people did in the mountains, this will change your world. It's, it's absolutely incredible. Is it a nation's battle for life? That's it. Okay, cool. I just looked that up to you. Yeah, Rich showed it in our class and found like a an original copy or however he found it. And it yeah, it actually hurt my brain. Yep. Like physically yeah. hurt. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I've never seen that. I'll check it out. Yeah, anyways, yeah, it's it's cool. That's great. <laughs> okay. Matt, uh, where can people find you on the socials or on the internet or yeah, the, the best way is probably my Instagram, just at uh, Matt Stern, M-A-T-T-S-T-I-R-N, and, or, or my website, mattsternphoto.com. That's kind of where I'm, I'm posting and, and keeping people up with what I'm doing. Awesome. We'll put that in the show notes. And because we are a corny podcast, we have to ask you a very important question. So, Matt, would you choose, if you had to, had to do it all over again, would you still choose to live a life in ruins? Absolutely. I wouldn't choose anything else. <laughs> Cool. That's the answer awesome. we usually get. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Have you, have you, you ever had coming on? Like, <laughs> I'm done. Uh, I think two or three people were like, no, <laughs> and it, it was a firm, quick. No. <laughs> yeah. So we just interviewed Matt Stern. You can find him on Instagram at Matt Stern and on his website. Is it Matt Stern photography or Matt Stern photo? Matt Stern photo. Cool. Yeah, you can find him there. Guys, please be sure to rate and review the podcast. I know I ask you every week, but I'm going to ask you again. Just press pause. You don't have to pause. You can like scroll, like flip the little thing down, go to where it says review. You can give us five stars on Spotify or on Apple. You can even write us a review. You can even just put the word the and it would help the algorithm. So you can just do that. Thank you. And with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. Did y'all hear about the, the cheese that started working out? It's shredded. <laughs> oh, man. Excellent. Well done. That's good. <laughs> This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.